I just recently finished reading a book on the sinking of the Lusitania. Some of you will recognize that name. It was the sinking of that ship that was one of the factors that brought uh, the United States into World War I. And as the book comes toward a, a conclusion, the author of the book, Eric Larson, makes this statement, even the tiniest alteration in a single vector could have saved the ship. What he's talking about is there were a number of things that happened that if any one of them had been different, the ship wouldn't have been sunk. For example, the ship had to wait for two hours while passengers from another ship made their way to that ship. Had that not happened, the ship would have passed the submarine in the fog and they wouldn't have seen each other. Had not the captain been ordered by the cruise line to shut down one of the four boilers, he would have made such good time that he would have arrived in England before the submarine was ever on station to sink it. The fog was a key factor as well because had it lasted one half hour longer, chances are the submarine would never have seen them and they would have arrived safely in port. Finally, and there are other factors, but finally this morning, had the captain not made a turn to starboard, the ship was actually faster than the submarine and the submarine was trying to gain and couldn't catch it when the captain correcting course made a turn to the starboard and slowed down and enabled the, the submarine to catch up and torpedo it. Any one of those things having been different would have saved the ship. Small things can sometimes lead to big disasters. And this morning we come to Joshua chapter 7 and I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles or on your electronic devices. And we're going to see in this chapter something we might think of as a little thing that results in a huge disaster for Israel. Let's actually back up one verse just to get some context. Chapter 6, verse 27 says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So we have the, the heights of the battle of Jericho, and the walls collapsing, and the great victory, and almost as suddenly Israel's fortunes collapse. Verse 1, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. You have that little three-letter word at the beginning of chapter 7, but everything changes. The high of chapter 6 is over, and we know something in chapter 7, verse 1, that Joshua doesn't know yet. We know that Achan sinned by taking some of those things from Jericho that were devoted to God. Everything was to be burned except the precious metals, which were to be taken to the treasury of God, but Achan took some of those. And so Achan goes into the city in the battle, but there is another battle going on besides the battle for Jericho. It's a battle for Achan's heart, for his soul. And he gives in, and he takes a Babylonian robe, and he takes some silver and some gold, and he hides it under his tent floor. He may have rationalized it, right? 
I mean, I've been 40 years wearing the same thing in the desert. I've risked my life in this battle. He may have rationalized it by saying, you know, it's just a robe and a little bit of money. Nobody's going to miss it. Nobody will ever know. We do that with sin, don't we? Well, it's just a little white lie. It's just a little bit of plagiarism of one section of my paper. I'm just taking a few things, just a couple things that don't belong to me, a few dollars out of the till. It's just a quick look at some pornography. I won't get hooked. It's just some casual flirting with somebody that's not my spouse. It's just a little bit of gossip. And we rationalize as Achan may have. And because of our sinfulness... We may be tempted to read chapter 7 and say, my goodness, isn't God overreacting a little here? I mean, one guy sins and the whole nation's held to account. One guy sins and people die. But Joshua chapter 7 brings us face to face with sin. It brings us face to face with with some countercultural realities about our sins Things that that don't compute in our culture, but are very, very true. The first one is that our small sins are never small. Our small sins are never small. We wrongly think that our sin is just about us. You know, it's my decision, it's my sin, it's my body, it's my choice. That resonates in our culture, but it's wrong. Because our small sins are never small. In fact, what we see in Joshua chapter 7 is that sin's contamination spreads. We're going to see in those verses, in verse 1, that it spreads beyond just Achan. In fact, it's very interesting. In the book of Joshua, we don't get a lot of genealogies. But here in chapter 7, twice we are told all about Achan's family line. In part because it's meant to show us that he's connected to other people, that people are connected and sin impacts more than just us. He's part of the whole. He's part of the tribe of Judah. The tribe from which David will come. The tribe from which Messiah will come. The tribe which was going to be a leader in the nation And his sin impacts the whole. In fact, notice the verse 1 begins with the people of Israel broke faith. And then it ends with the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. The whole nation is impacted by the contamination of sin. They broke faith. That's a phrase we're going to see three times in this passage. The idea is they, they violated the covenant. They committed treason. It's a word that is often associated with marital infidelity. That's what Israel, not just Achan, but Israel did because Achan sinned and the contamination spread. Because no sin is small when it's, when it's against a holy God. We talked about that last week some as we talked about God's holiness and the reality of what that means for us as sinful people. Jump ahead a little in the story to verse 11 and notice what God says. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. There's that phrase again. That I commanded them. 
They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their things. Israel has committed those sins because Achan did. The contamination has spread to everybody. But it's not just the contamination that spreads. What we see in this story is that that sin's consequences also spread. It's not just Achan who's going to suffer. He's going to suffer. We'll see that later. But many others are going to suffer consequences as well. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil there, for they are few. The climb up from the plains of Jericho, where Israel is, up to Ai is about 13 miles. It's over very rough terrain, and you actually go from 800 feet below sea level to 1,700 feet above sea level. It is not an easy trip. And so the spies go and they spy out the city, and they say, we don't need to take the whole nation up there, not even the whole army, because it's little. In fact, Ai, the name means dump garbage heap and whether that was the name at the time or became the name later because of destruction we don't know but if that was already the name they probably looked this city's not very impressive what a junk pile we don't need the whole army let's just send two or three thousand men there's some overconfidence there chapter 8 will tell us there were 12,000 people in the city so it's not a small city but there's some overconfidence but that's not why The defeat happens. Notice what happens in the story. So about 3,000 men went up from there, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gates as far as Shebarim and struck them down at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Israel loses the battle. And they don't lose the battle because they're overconfident. They may be overconfident, but that's not why they lose. They lose because there's sin in the camp. They lose because of Achan's sin. So they go up there brimming with overconfidence, and they run back with their tails between their legs, and and about 36 soldiers die in the effort because sin's consequences spread. When I was junior age, I went to camp with a group from my church, and on the last day, we were packing up everything, getting ready to leave, and one of the the guys who was younger than me came walking out of the woods, and, and when he got not too close to us, we could smell it. Oh, my goodness, skunk. And my dad said to him, what happened? And he said, well, I was out in the woods, and I saw a baby skunk, and so I picked it up. And I, what in the world were you doing? He said, well, I saw on television that baby skunks don't spray. Now, I don't know if baby skunks don't spray. If they don't spray, it wasn't a baby skunk. But I do know that that little skunk sprayed him, and he was not the only one that suffered. I mean, they, they tried to clean him up, but we had to ride all the way home in the same car with him, with the windows down. That's what sin does. It 
spreads, the contamination spreads, the consequences spread. We may think it's a little baby sin, but it doesn't matter. Small sins are never small. And so Israel loses a battle. And Israel's leaders and the nation lose heart. Did you see that phrase? The hearts of the people melted and became as water. That should sound familiar. It's the same thing that Rahab said had happened to the Canaanites when they heard that Israel had crossed the Red Sea. It's the same thing that chapter 5 tells us happened again to the Canaanites when they heard Israel had crossed the Jordan River. But now it's the Israelites who are losing heart because of their defeat. And sin will do that. Sin will make you feel defeated because you are. Sin will cause you to lose confidence in God Sin will cause you to question the assurance of your salvation even. Why? Because that sin has caused consequences in your heart and in your life. But it's not just the people, the the leaders lose heart. And Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. They are grieving, they're mourning, they've lost heart. So Israel loses the battle, the people lose heart, and Joshua loses focus. Look at what he says to God. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Now give Joshua credit. He at least goes to the right place. He goes to the ark. He goes into the presence of God. But he sounds a lot like Israel in the wilderness, doesn't he? Oh, we should have stayed in Egypt. God's just brought us out here to kill us. Only 36 men out of an army of 600,000 died, but any defeat is hard for a leader, and Joshua's forgetting the promises of God. He's struggling with his faith. He's blaming God. He asks the question, did you bring us into this land to destroy us? And then he makes a statement, we should have stayed on the other side. He asks the question, how do I lead Israel now? He makes a statement, the Canaanites will surround us and destroy us. And then he says, what are you going to do for your reputation, God? He feels like God has abandoned him and them. He's lost focus. You see, our small sins are never small. Achan's small sin has contaminated the nation and its consequences have spread throughout. Now, we tend to think pretty individualistically in the West. But we're not isolated islands. Paul makes that point talking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little sin impacts the whole church. Imagine for a minute that you were one of those fortunate ones on the Lusitania who managed to get to a lifeboat. And you're sitting there in that lifeboat hoping somebody will come and rescue you. And you look across and the guy on the bench in front of you has a knife out and he's digging a hole in the bottom of the boat. And you say, what are you doing? And he says, well, it's just a small hole. Besides, it's under my seat, not yours. What do you care? 
That small hole will sink the whole boat. It doesn't matter whose seat it's under. And parents, if you want to have a really good chance of destroying your children, then disobey God. Walk away from God. Skip worship for any and everything and teach your children that worship with other people really isn't that important. Be unfaithful to your spouse. Lie. Unless God is gracious, you'll succeed in destroying your family and your children. And as a member of Berean, if you want to struggle, cause Berean to struggle, then gossip, be divisive, grumble, hold a grudge, don't serve. And that poison will not only contaminate you, it will spread. We need to understand our small sins are not small and we can't ignore them and we've got to deal with them in our life because if we don't, we'll become like the world. That's what's happened to Israel. They have taken the devoted things and so they now, in God's eyes, are like the Canaanites. We don't want to be like the world. Our small sins are never small. There's a second countercultural reality Our hidden sins are never hidden. See, the world tells us, you know, you can mask over whatever you're doing. You can keep it from people. You can hide it from your spouse. You can hide it from your family. You can hide it from your coworkers. Nobody has to know. But that's wrong. Our hidden sins are never hidden. God knows exactly what we've done. In fact, Before the battle's ever lost, all the way back in verse 1, we find out that God knew about the sin in the camp. And we get to learn about the sin in the camp before the battle as well, but Joshua doesn't know. Joshua doesn't understand why they have been defeated, but he's about to learn it. And God's response to Joshua probably is not what we would expect. We might expect some rebuke because Joshua's complaining but we don't expect him to say, get up, stop praying, Joshua. That's what he's saying. This is not a time for prayer. It's not a time for grumbling. It's not a time for accusing. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. It's a time for taking action. He expected, I think, Joshua to understand that the only reason why God would allow Israel to be defeated was because there was sin in the camp. He'd said that back in chapter 6. If you take any of this, then you will suffer the consequences. And so now he says to Joshua, Israel has sinned. We read it earlier. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more. Wow, what a a contrast from chapter 6, verse 27. Unless, unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. God says, Joshua, you're going to keep running in front of your enemies because you've become my enemy due to sin So you need to change. What do they need to do? Verse 13, they need to consecrate. He says it again, get up! Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow 
For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. God knows exactly what we've done. And this morning you may think you're like Achan and nobody knows what's happening and you may well have hidden it from other people, but God knows. God knows. And the truth is that our sins will be uncovered. It may not be today. It may not be this week. Or it might be. Achan's sins are literally dug up from in the ground where he hid them. And God gives the prescription for what they are to do to uncover the sin. Now, God could have simply said, "Um, Joshua, go check Achan's tent. Underneath it, you'll find the reason. Get rid of it. But he didn't do that. I think there's some reasons why he does what he does here. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clans that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has, here's the phrase for the third time, transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he's done an outrageous and unthinkable thing in Israel. And so God orders a search. Tribe by tribe, family by family, household by household, man by man, and it's done by lots. And the next morning, Joshua gets up early. We see that pattern of obedience in him again. And he brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. You get the idea that God wants us to see how connected the family is, how much we are interconnected with those around us, that sin doesn't just affect us. And you may have noticed in verses 14 through 18, I underlined the word take and taken. It actually occurs eight times in those verses. It is a word that is most often used of capturing something or someone And I think God chooses that word because Achan has been captured by sin, but now God is going to capture Achan. And so Achan is exposed. His sin is uncovered. Everybody knows. See, our our hidden sins are never hidden. God knows. And someday other people will as well. A while back, I read an article about a woman who was supposed to be in court in the United Kingdom, and she didn't show up. And so a warrant was issued for her arrest, and the policeman arrived at her house, and when they came into the house, she put a laundry basket over her head to hide from them. I don't think she ever got past that childhood idea of, you know, if I cover my eyes and I can't see you, you can't see me. Obviously, they saw her. She could not hide And neither can you and I hide from the gaze of God. And I don't know here in this worship center or watching online what you may be hiding. But if you are, hiding doesn't work. So what do we do? 
I'd like to suggest to you there is a third very, very countercultural reality about our sin that the story reveals to us. And that is that our response to our sins must be genuine repentance. Not an apology, not hiding, not covering it up, not blaming other people, but genuine repentance. We saw last week, repent now. And that was directed at the Canaanites. But repentance isn't just for the Canaanites. It's not just for the pagans. It's for the people of God as well. And just as we saw last week, God provides opportunities to repent. He did for the Canaanites. He does for Achan. Achan had time. Before the battle of Ai, he had time to repent. After the battle of Ai, he knows, I am certain, that he's the cause of the defeat. He had time to repent. He had time to repent while Joshua is on his face before the ark complaining to God. He had time to repent while the nation is sanctifying and cleansing themselves and getting ready for the next day. He had time to repent as the lots are thrown, as the tribe is chosen, as the family is chosen. In fact, I think we get such slow detail through there because it's almost like it's in slow motion. Bang, that tribe, that clan, that family, Achan. He had time all through that to say, wait a minute, we don't need to do this. I did it. Here's what I did. But he doesn't. He hardens his heart and keeps quiet and only confesses when he has to confess, when he's confronted. Then Joshua said to Achan, he speaks gently, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And now, because he's been caught, Achan confesses. Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did when I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Shinar. Shinar is Babylon. Probably significant because Babylon is the city of man that is always opposed to, to God and his people. And here he's going to clothe himself with that. And 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. We're going to see in a minute, Achan had all kinds of livestock. He was wealthy but he wanted more. And he wanted those things more than he wanted God, which is, by the way, the very definition of idolatry. Whenever I want something more than I want God and obeying God, I've created an idol. You'll notice the three words. I hope I underlined it. I saw, I coveted, I took. Because God deliberately uses those words here They're the same words we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Eve saw that the fruit was desired, coveted to make one wise, and she took it. In chapter 3 of Genesis, Adam and Eve sin, and they plunge the whole human race into sin and judgment. And in Joshua 7, Achan sins, and he plunges the whole nation into sin and judgment. His sin impacts more than just him. 
And though God provided him with opportunities to repent, he doesn't. And he knows what he did was wrong because he hides it. He buries it thinking his sin would be hidden, but his sin isn't hidden. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. Remember verse 1, God's anger burned toward all the people of Israel because all the people of Israel transgressed the covenant. Now all the people of Israel lay out the devoted things. It's in essence their repentance, their acknowledgement of the sin. But Achan didn't repent. God provides opportunities to repent because sin's consequences are real. And we've seen the consequences spread to the nation, but now we're going to see them up close and personal with Achan. And so we pick up the story in verse 24, And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised up over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Notice how anger begins the chapter and that it's satisfied at the end of the chapter. Therefore, to this day, when Joshua is writing the book, The name of that place is called the Valley of Accor, the Valley of Trouble. Achan and his whole family are stoned to death and burned. And some of you are thinking, wait a minute, everybody? Yes. And I think I can explain it. Deuteronomy 24 verse 16 says that children are not to be put to death for the sins of their parents. So what's happening here? I think notice, first of all, that no wife is mentioned She's probably dead and gone off the scene, which may be an indication that these are not toddlers. These are children who are old enough to know right from wrong. There's also the reality that living in a tent, there's not a lot of privacy. These children would have known whatever their age, they may have been grown children for all we know. They would have known that dad was hiding this under the tent floor. What if they had confronted Achan? What if when he brought it back to the tent, they'd said, Dad, you can't do this. Burn the robe and take the gold and silver to the treasury. Then 36 soldiers wouldn't have died and their lives would have been spared, but they didn't. And so they reaped the consequences of being sort of accessories after the fact to their father's sin. Some of you are thinking, but he confessed. He did. I don't think his repentance was real. And I think we're getting a a good lesson from God here early in Israel's history that God takes sin seriously. Just like in Acts chapter 5, early in the history of the church, Ananias and Sapphira conspire together to lie to God And when they tell their lie, they drop dead because God is showing how seriously in those early days 
he views sin. Somebody asked me after the first service, but why did he die? I mean, why was he executed? Because he caused the death of 36 men. He was, in essence, a murderer of those men by his sin. So our response has to be genuine repentance. That is the only solution. It's the only answer. We can't hide our sin. So we need to admit it. We need to confess it. We need to repent of it and throw ourselves on God's mercy. And God's mercy has been symbolized in every slide of this point with the cross. Because that's where mercy comes. Jesus Christ came and he died for your sins and my sins. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, that's what you need to turn from your sin and ask God to save you through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you do know Christ, but you're still struggling with sin, you need to run back to the cross and repent of your sin and ask Him for forgiveness, and He will grant it. We get a beautiful picture in the Old Testament. The book of Hosea is a book about Israel's unfaithfulness, their transgressing, violating of the marriage vow to God as his bride and how God will discipline them. And Hosea and his wife are a picture of that. And tucked away in chapter 2 is this couple of verses. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, Israel, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. The valley of trouble becomes a place of hope, of reconciliation because of God's grace to his people. We often think we can dabble with sin, that we can play with it and it won't hurt us. But that's not true. The only answer for our sins is genuine repentance. Gary Richmond is an author, pastor, who, but for a time he worked as a person in the a zoo with zookeepers. And he's written a book called A View from the Zoo, and one of the stories in that is a story about his friend Julie and her pet raccoon. And he said Bandit was just a, a cute, cuddly little raccoon that would ride on her shoulder and would take his paws and look into, put them on her cheeks and look into her eyes and And he writes that he was basically a one raccoon advertisement that raccoons make great pets. And so one day he talked to one of the experts at the zoo and he said, you know, why don't more people have raccoons as pets? And the man said, raccoons undergo a glandular change at about 24 months. After that, they become unpredictable, independent, and often attack their owners. Gary Richmond said, are there exceptions? None that I know of, he answered. Then Julie is likely to be bitten? Any time now, I should think. So since a 30-pound raccoon can be equal to a 100-pound dog in a scrap, I felt compelled to mention the coming change to Julie. She sat and listened politely as I explained what an eminent world authority had shared with me. I'll never forget her answer. It will be different for me. Bandit is different. Bandit wouldn't hurt me. He just wouldn't. Three months later, she went, underwent plastic surgery for facial lacerations caused by her adult raccoon. 
There may be people sitting here this morning or watching online and you've got a pet sin. And you say, you know, it won't hurt me. I, I, can, I can deal with this. It's not going to damage me. I won't be hurt. Joshua 7 shows us that's never the case. That sin always comes back to bite us. And that our only refuge is genuine repentance. Repenting of small sins now is the only way to avoid big defeats. So this morning, if you're hiding anger or bitterness or greed or lust, run to the cross. Repent of it. Ask God for forgiveness and for his help so that your small sin doesn't become a big defeat. Let's pray together. Lord, sin is so insidious. We think it's little. We think we can toy with it. We can keep it around as a pet. But it's deadly. We think we can hide it. But you know. We think it's small, but it impacts us and people around us far more than we realize. So, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning that if they are hiding sin, that they would bring it out in the open to God and confess it. He already knows. May they run to the cross for forgiveness. And, Lord, if there's anybody watching or here in the worship center that has never come for forgiveness of their sins and into a right relationship with you through Christ, may they see that you know all about their lives and that you are calling them to come in repentance and faith. Help us. Help us to take the lessons of Joshua 7 to heart and to deal with our sin so that you don't have to. We pray in our only hope, our Savior's, 